I didn't feel weirdly that far away from her, even though it's a different time, different type of woman than I am. I, I don't know. So maybe Matt saw something in me. to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Welcome to They Coined It. <laughs> hey, Roberta. Hey, Dan. <laughs> this is a very right, serious. So we got those. business to do. We got, we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm excited because we're going to get to this fantabulous conversation with Talia Balsam, who plays Mona Sterling. So that alone is, it's enough to get someone a little off kilter, isn't it? I'm going to read you a quote, Dan, and you're going to see if you can guess who wrote, who originated, who said Ugh. this. He's like, I hate contests. Okay. <laughs> quote, okay, right off the bat, this is Talia Balsam's episode. She's so perfect and great to watch her. Nope, I said it wrong. She's so perfect and great to watch here. Love this scene top to tail, end quote. Who said that? Yeah. Oh, wow. That sounds like something that Matthew Weiner would have said on a, like a DVD extra or something. That would be Dan Jasper uh, from the blog Basket of Kisses and one of your what episode roundup, uh, what what did you call those? Not so live blogging. Not so live blogging. Yeah. It was right. basically as this. Bruno Kirby would say, as Bruno Kirby would say, I love when someone quotes me to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, wow. Okay. So yeah. I did, I, I, they coined it, I said it, and I'll, I'll own it because that's is. a great quote. Dan would do these, what he called not so live blogging, where he would sit down a few years later and rewatch an episode and just like throw notes out there. It was great. It was, you know, it was like a, it was like a live stream of consciousness. consciousness. It was great. And I found that quote and I was like, and you've been saying that so consistently leading up to this conversation with her (laughs) and ever since. And I had that, I was not, did never thought that, didn't think back to that. I hadn't like... That wasn't stuck in my head at all. So I love, I'm, um, I'm delighted by my own consistency on that. <laughs> I know, I like it was that. very consistent. And it was great because <laughs> I had not, I had not watched this episode in years as is going to continue be the case, being the case episode by episode, especially. Me, more and more yeah, as we go on. That's it. Right. So seriously, after season three, I don't know. Don't spoil it for me. Like, yeah, <laughs> I keep, really. my sister keeps spoiling things for me. I'm like, shh. She's like, but you, I'm like, I forget my brain is like a sieve. Anyway, point is I have since watched the episode and was really reminded, um, you know, like I spoke to her first, like sort of like, yes, I kind of remember how great you were in this, but then I got to sit down and watch it. And then I go back and I see this quote and uh, yes, I cannot argue. It is so funny. It's great. It's great. She really was the one you've wanted to talk to the whole time. She's a treat. She is such a treat because, um, you know, Roger and Mona get divorced. We don't, there's, there's nothing about the character that says she must remain in the picture. She must remain in the story, right? Roger and Jane go off. We, we could certainly envision Mad Men, you know, going in that direction. Uh, but we get, and, and periodically, we don't get a ton of Mona Sterling. We, 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 I, she's very uh, sparsely in this season to begin with. But um, wow, she, she, she is. Uh, I love that. I love that we get to see her a lot more in this particular episode, and we get Roger's toast, which is about her, and that's and yes. that's wonderful. Too. That's right. Well, and it's a, it's a very, whew, you know, it's a very real and believable relationship. That starts 
that really starts here in this and in this episode in the Grown Ups, mm-hmm. which is Roger and Mona as respectful, collaborative exes. Which is, it's just completely viable and plausible. They are going to continue to be the parents of this brat. They've only got the one kid. Right. They, and they have such, what, whatever that rapport they always <laughs> right. had will continue. And they're never going to be best friends. I mean, it's just an interesting one-two punch, the two episodes where he reconnects with Joan a little bit. And, and actually, you've got Annabelle and Joan in one episode. And then you've got this one where you've got this, this connection with his ex-wife each of those are believable in their own different way so guys we're breaking this episode up into two parts you're going to hear our conversation with talia balsam uh and then following that you're uh, we're going to have uh our conversation of the grown-ups as we typically do and in that conversation you'll hear us we'll talk a little bit about this episode title and the grown-ups and sort of what it refers to many many different things and f- with regard to the character of mona sterling she's in a way, the apex of that, <laughs> of that, she is the grown up like left and right. She is a three hundred and sixty degree uh, embodiment of 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 what we're talking about. She's a grown up to 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 Margaret, her daughter, in this intense time. She's a grown up with Roger. She's a grown up. <laughs> she has to be the better person with Jane. You know, she's constantly put upon to be above it all, which is of course a very grown up attribute, and she's great at it. And it's. That's probably why I was so enamored with her from the beginning. She's not just great at it. She is just a natural at it. She, <laughs> She's that mom that you, as the kid of that mom, can't imagine was ever a kid herself because she embodies so much grown-upiness, <laughs> right? She just is that. She is grace. She is decisions. She is power. The kids she, today call it, it adulting. She's that's good right. at adulting, she, well, right. but, but it's, which I hate. I'll never use that phrase, but I hear it all the time. And that's fair. And it's like it's like she feels like someone who never had to try to adult. She just was a grown up. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So we get to talk to Talia and she's wonderful. And you guys will hear the whole conversation and, and hopefully enjoy it as much as we did because she was fantabulous. So enjoy, guys. <laughs> to be on here with you. It's really great to meet you. Thank you. Talk about something that, I mean, I actually just revisited the one episode you were talking about. So it's, uh, I forgot how when you put it on, how you all of a sudden just, even with the theme music, you're just like, ah. Yeah. (laughs) You are, you're you're in a, you're in an entire universe with that show. It very much ages well. Some of it reads a little different, but there's no, there's no looking at it now and not getting immersed. You're just as, in good job guys it's just wonderful (laughs) (laughs) well i just redid uh you know when sopranos was on i watched it once a week you know on sunday so i just redid a deep dive during pandemic which is you know and and that was um also amazing to kind of revisit yeah um and i i'd like to revisit mad men the same way i haven't done the deep dive five-year dive. Right, right, right. No, it's, I think the quality survives. These things that are such high quality, it's, you know, it's being whatever we're calling it, new golden age or new high watermark or whatever for TV is, is real. It's a real thing. I think that all the streaming and all the outlets for storytelling is just phenomenal, which is probably a good way to start talking about uh, within 
and what you're doing around Tribeca and your your new film. Yes. Um, well, it's a, I guess you'd call it a short and it was made during the pandemic. So talk about like, uh, you know, somebody throwing you a lovely bone to kind of have something else to um, other people. It was just lovely. The piece is lovely. It, it, all of the pieces, you know, there's many shorts within this format and every um, a lot of the directors were handed uh, iPhones because this is how it would work and a light kit and I imagine Bart Freundlich wrote his and I think I haven't seen the other ones everyone did a version of what was going on in their life or what they were hoping or I think that uh, his really spoke to um, at least for me I mean I, it's really tapped into you know, a relationship between two sisters and one who's experiencing this thing in one way and one who's single is experiencing it another way and and how this thing that could join us could also tear us apart. Um, it's very moving, his, his short intersection. Intersection as part of something called within, right? With slash in. Yes, with slash in. And um, so there's part one and part two. So like four of these shorts will be put together. That's what I'm interested to see how they kind of do that. And then part two will show and then they'll stream. So this was scripted throughout throughout the, pro- the production? Was was it scripted? I mean, it sounds very, um, what's the word? Improvisational almost, with, like you say, with the iPhones and everything. But was there, was there a, a regular type of production or how different was it? Totally scripted beautifully scripted by Bart and beautifully shot by, uh, well, everything was local, by the way. I mean, part of probably this doing this job was that I lived in proximity mm. <laughs> because it was, you know, I mean, it was right in the middle of it. And um, I had actually had COVID. So um, oh, gosh. I had sort of gotten better. And then they, uh, Bart and Julian and them all got tested. So that was a, our own little bubble in their house. So it was very easy that way because I've worked since then. It's, it's very complicated to, to work now. And it's kind of an amazing venture that people on these bigger budget things. So it, when you say like a you know, production, it was you know, a good three or four days together doing his script and uh, it was very easy. It was very non sort of intrusive. The camera, I barely, you could barely see it. So, um, which I love. So it feels almost improvisational, but it, it really wasn't. Wow. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. So what can you tell us about the overall plot or the overall um, uh, uh, theme of, of, of your segment? So Julianne's married to Don Cheadle. They have a child. There's a, they leave. There's a Black Lives Matter. This is also in conjunction with this. It's very important for them to be part of that. And, you know, she as a mother is feeling like it's very dangerous to be a part of. So the, the son wants to claim his own identity and be part of this. And they go back to Don Cheadle's mother's uh, house, you know, in Virginia and, and to acknowledge the this other thing that is happening in the world simultaneously. And she is uh, home alone and the sister comes to see her who is in the city by herself. And I think they're grappling with, uh, I think Julianne's character is grappling with her marriage, but I think the sisters are grappling with uh, 
you know how people have preconceived notions of like your life is better than mine because you're in a family unit and the person in the family unit is like your life's better than mine because you have like nobody's you know needing something from you all the time and I think that just who they are you know I, I have a feeling during this time that you know people's best and worst sides come out so I don't know if you meet my character at the best moment of her life and maybe she's not quite as in tune with things as she should be. I love the idea of single representation. There's been as a single person yes. who uh, you might meet the cat other than otherwise it's, it's just us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's, I've had many moments through this pandemic of, I wish I was with people. I'm so glad I'm not with people. And then, you know, coveting and not coveting and all of those things. And then there hasn't been a lot of, it sounds dumb, but there hasn't been a lot of single representation for that experience in this pandemic. And it's, it's something. It's a huge discussion, actually, between me and my friends about, uh, mostly my women friends, but it, it's, uh, you know, I think nobody's sort of like, it's just sort of like, you don't know what this is like, you know? And I was like, I can't, I'm like, yeah, you're right. And I was in a situation where I was in a house and lucky enough to get out of the city with my mother, me sick, my son and my husband. And we were all trying to figure out how to get food because was it, you know, we were in the height of how much fear yeah. it was. You were afraid to touch anything. Or wipe it, you know, it was just like, and then my mom was there and that I would have been much less paranoid if, if I hadn't actually brought her into a situation where I was actually then ill. Wow. So that was a little scary. So I, I, I think there's, you know, I th think it's a dangerous to compare, but I do feel what you said representationally that to be alone and, you know, I don't know, I feel, I feel for my friends who've had to deal with that. I think there's no relief from it. I could maybe go outside, you know, I could, chisel out a little time for myself but I think to have all that I yeah I thought he he spoke to that really well I can't wait I really personally it's been a, it's been an interesting um reflection on all this because I'm used to being right we're also we're already used to being alone so should it be that m much worse but then you have these moments where it's epically alone you know and, and and I think age age is a factor there too I mean co-workers and other people it seems if you're under say say 30 to 35 in that range and the pandemic hits and it's like, oh, I just got my apartment or I just moved or I've been out or whatever the case may be. If I'm on my own, those individuals, it seems just anecdotally went back home. So the number of coworkers and folks that I might know who are single um, were going back home during this time, you know, right up to that edge. If you were a little bit on the older side, if you were up to say 40 or 35 or 40, you you had perhaps either more resources or more whatever money included to stay put well you know if you were if you were on your own and it's it, there's that interesting sort of dynamic of that that decision to go home or the, you know to back to back to your your folks if they could take you in i just saw a lot of that and i think i think emotionally there's got to be something about that in terms of you know who can who can't why why you might go back why you might stay because obviously you know it's it's an isolating period this whole thing so i think that was also a, a, a bit of a factor in a lot of people's decision making i've seen all of it a lot of artistic friends a lot of performers a lot of people who really you know 
restaurants and restaurants and piano bars and theater and all of that. There's also a lot of roommates in, in that age group that people were dealing with. But I know so many people who relocated, married, married and stable, left Jersey City, went up to Vermont for a while. Now they live there. People who left our temple and, and then a lot of younger people too. Some of them who just stayed put in the city. They're all now trying to get better, better apartments because now that's happening. Yeah, real estate. Right. Maybe. <laughs> sure. uh, just a ton yeah, of relocation absolutely. across the board. Yeah. I mean, I had every generation here with me, my, my son, <laughs> who then didn't go back to school, you know, like dealing with that. But I also think it was a great gift for my son and my mother to spend time together that they never would have had. Totally. And to see, you know, what, you know, my, my son, Harry, really see what he was made of. If he could maintain his creative, he went music downstairs. But so we were very lucky. But, um, a lot of also friends here have had to get rid of their offices, get rid of, like, just boom, you know, shut it down, make it smaller. And um, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. So glad you're okay. I am too. I was lucky. I mean, I had, some, if, if you wanted a mild case of it, it was lucky. It was just nerve wracking with all the other people around me. Yeah. Were yeah. Vulnerable. Thank goodness. Well, look, um, so it's a short, it's a, it's a, the, the piece itself is, is obviously in this larger anthology of, of shorts. Um, how long is the final piece? Do you know how, how long the final? I don't. I mean, I think this thing lives on its own. It must be an hour and something. Cause you know, they're, they're doing, um, they're, you know, there's sort of an event outside to watch one. I can't imagine it would be more, um, it's ironic because my mother is an actress and she has a thing showing on the same day at Tribeca Film Festival also. <laughs> that's phenomenal. Like, oh, that's awesome. I haven't done anything in uh, how long? A year? <laughs> like, right. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's cool. Can you can you tell the audience, the, the audience, the listeners, who your mother is? My mother is an actress named Joyce Van Patten, who uh, people will know from a certain generation or current i mean she's always been very current so. i fully remember her yeah. <laughs> it's the little difference in our ages dan doesn't i fully remember her always. i know the name but i don't uh, have Dad, uh, check it uh, out because it's pretty good and then in this thing this webisode she's doing is she's amazing in it and, and my father was an actor named martin balsam again of course generationally well see 12 angry men is like my all-time fan yeah you know, uh, a classic movie, my go-to. Well, so that, that's um. <laughs> exactly the foreman. Absolutely. And, uh, but, but, but yeah, my, my, uh, my other relationship would be with your uncle because eight is enough was, you know, always playing somewhere on, on, on a, on a TV. So me and some friends just had this long talk about Diana Highland. Nobody remembers that it was before Betty Buckley, but I remember that whole thing. I mean, I am that age. I remember every 100%. bit of John Travolta and whole. That was very sad. It was yeah. incredibly tragic. Mm -hmm. It was wildly tragic. Anyway, that was that's awesome that she's working. And that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's fantastic. It's amazing. Wonderful. Well, I I, I don't I, I sometimes get out to to Rebecca each year. Um, to to see something or other or, or or what might be there, so I'll try and see if there's a way to 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 watch. Because look, an an hour with Talia Balsam and Don Cheadle and Julianne Moore sounds like not a any bad kind of film. I time in my life. You can also just stream it the next day. Oh, that's good too. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm glad we can. Thank you for talking about it.
Yeah. No, we're delighted. It sounds phenomenal. And I, and fr- frankly, I just think the process of getting films made during this crazy period is fascinating. Not just the rules and the restrictions, but how it how it creates more creativity of, of ways to get things done. It's uh yeah, because I did do another job on a much you know a bigger budget, but big, a lot more people, um, and that was. Uh, a tribute to, I, I mean, it was not easy. I have to say something that took four, should have taken four or five days took, you know, weeks because of the testing and their, you know, what the, the job I was on, it was very, um, you know, conscientious. They have to be so, but it was not easy. My, my sister-in-law works in, in, te- in food television production. It's a world. I mean, between food that you can't touch, you can't eat, and then the people and the testing and the... It's tough. It is tough. Well, it's funny when that clip of Tom Cruise got released of him yelling at everybody. And I, I really felt like there was a f- almost 50% of, you know, oh, Tom Cruise is kind of going off again. But then the other half was sort of like, which I kind of fell into, which was, no, guys, he kind of has a point. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, make make your opinion about how he's making his point. But there is one hell of a responsibility for filmmakers for that the crew and the cat and everybody associated to do things the right way. And this is not normal times. And so we can't act normally. And he's reflecting that. And that just has to be understood. You know, he was but, very clear. I, I, I think rightly so. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Amazing. So, um, Taya, we, we, we love Mona Sterling. That just, let's start with that. We love <laughs> who she is. <laughs> I was team Mona from the moment I met her. And I, I think you were so well cast. Like the, you meet Roger Sterling's wife in the second episode in ladies room. And there is just, you are just, you have this sort of regal poised, take no prisoners. You know, that's that's who I saw. It was just so it was just so clear from, you know, from from jump. Nice. What informed you? What were you told about in advance? What what was on this page? Certainly the costumes. I can imagine you put that on in your costumes inform you. I mean, if you watch it, I, I see sort of morphing throughout, but it's so sparse laid out. But it's um. Mostly the writing and the costumes inform you. I think Matt hired me. I don't think he had to tell me that much. You know, I think it's all on the page. I didn't feel weirdly that far away from her, even though it's a different time, different type of woman than I am. I, I don't know. So maybe Matt saw something in me that but it really informed by the writing that, you know, as Roberta said, we we meet the character pretty pretty early in the series, but we already know who Roger is a little bit by that. And enough to know that this is a this is a very strong personality, yes. <laughs> an amusing, entertaining personality. You know that kind of sucks all the energy. You know in any room that he's in, which which is great because John just that's made for him. Um, but who's the woman who's married to that man? Is kind of the <laughs> is what the the audience is thinking, and we get in a sense right away of who that is. And I think when you inhabit that, and of course the backstory of, of you're being married to the, to the, to the actor, the two actors being married. Um, but th- that's what the viewers taking from it is sort of all of this information coming in and then watching you just kind of like nail the, 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 the three point shot, you know, by, by, by inhabiting this character, both 
physically and the costuming and everything else, but the performance is just, you know who this woman is and you see who this woman is. And we, we watch you um, inhabit this character. Again, you're saying a lot of that seemed to be a little bit, um, I guess, intuitive from, from everything that you were getting. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, you know, if you say, Oh, what was her background? I mean, those things were never really discussed like with Matt and I, if we discussed anything, it would be during a scene what this intention was, but, um, you know, I wouldn't, I would have to verify with Matt. I mean, I had ideas about Mona. I thought she came from money. I thought that money was important to her, but I didn't think she was desperate enough to cling on, you know, but I think she's also traditional and, and stayed in a marriage regardless of, you know, you could call it old fashioned or forward thinking of what that person is up to that uh, kind of very separate in a lot of ways and that connected, I think the connection just with John and I also being, you know, in a, married. So this is a completely leading question, but do, do you, after the years of marriage to Roger, do you think Mona was completely surprised that he would leave her regardless of the way he did it, but that he would at all? Such a, it's a good question. Um, I don't know if like deeply surprised. I don't know that she felt as threatened that he would leave as like, maybe you let these men carry on, but you maintain the marriage. But I think that the, the show takes place um, in the time period where people are shifting and Roger wanted to be younger and um, involved in that movement talking about the 60s right and i don't think that mona was part of that i think mona yeah. was part of uh, cape cod and you know those things and i i i think that was probably not that interesting to him and you just look at the timing of it you go oh yeah the girl's out of the house and just that but i don't i don't think she probably thought oh he will i, I think it i think if it had been a different time he may not have a previous time a previous time, time in history i just yeah. think that there was probably, it was so exciting, you know, I mean, as a child, like even my memories of like what was going on in the world and Woodstock, even though it was sort of, you know, in my young mind, you know, I actually really, when I think about the character I associate most with would be the daughter, Sal, is it Sally? Yeah. Yeah, I'm always like, those were the things. And I was like, so if I was an adult, <laughs> that's what I would want to be moving towards, especially if I was aging. <laughs> so, um, you know, but, you know, you realize you're out of time, too. So, yeah, but I yeah. think that she's also very cognizant of his uh, insecurities. For sure. Well, I keep thinking of that line as you're talking and it comes later in the series where she said, I thought I thought you left me because I got older, but I was you left me because you got yeah. older. No, I mean, you know, I think she's... Which, which ties up a lot of the whole thing for the two yeah, of them. I don't think she needs to uh, dwell on her own insecurities too much. I was just going to say, I don't... I. It's not that a person would not have insecurities, but you don't get... Mona's dealing with her stuff. Yeah. She's... she's. This is a you problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not a me problem. Right. Like, it's also, I think, very sort of modern of her. Or maybe she's in therapy. And, and, and jumping ahead a little, because when we see how Mona moves on again it's in it's in fits and starts right it's it's sporadically but you have this air of contentment in your relationship with roger that that i guess it evolves but again we don't see every piece of that evolution was there anything to the development of that was that something that was always in the script as as things went on every time you 
you you intersect it again with with the show that's where the character was or was there some sort of discussion as to how Mona would carry on no there was no discussion and I I think it's sort of lovely to see them you know sometimes when you're through something connect in a way that you may have originally you know back to sort of the kernel of who you are and you know john says that um they cut out a piece originally where we were in a car together after uh, dinner after that dinner with uh and that um he said if it hadn't been cut there would have been more of this but so we're in the car in a limousine after we have dinner with Don and um, with January and why am I forgetting Betty? I'm like confusing everyone's <laughs> name. And, um, we're with you. So, <laughs> and, and so Roger um, uh, farts in the car and Mona just rolls the window down and is like, oh, Roger. And um, he was <laughs> like, if they had just kept that. I mean, that was a lot of information. I was like, yeah. But it had to be cut because the show was, uh, we didn't get to shoot it. Um, oh, but that doesn't God. really answer your question. You, but, you know, I it's funny that it wasn't discussed. I enjoyed that they still had that uh, sort of, um, they knew each other. But but I think Matt had her remarry. And I had always had um, a sort of thought to Mona moving to another country and um, living her best life there as a single uh, business person. But the, uh, but, but, you know, in Mad Men, sort of classic Mad Men style, that journey of how they get to that point of contentment or easing or whatever it might be, you know, it's a, it's not where we think the show is going to go because it starts out with this contentious divorce and I want, you know, I'm going to get every penny and what you think is this sort of classic, say 60s but really 70s and 80s also but this classic sort of um you know uh battle of wills over over the divorce the lawyers and who is she getting and who am i getting and and putting all that together you just see it as this perhaps classic um you know two people who are now going to be fighting for the rest of their lives but it doesn't go that way at all which is again to the viewer very fascinating yeah, she might be relieved a little bit to not be married to him oh yeah i, I <laughs> I definitely think that too. Yes. after the initial shock wears off. <laughs> but also that comfort that was always there between them. They had a very functional relationship in, in, in the literal sense. Like you knew how to roll down the window is like such a perfect, yeah. like, right? <laughs> like that, that, that is a great, that is a scene that, that, right. that does yeah. exemplify this, uh, this marriage, this relationship. And so you can take that comfort that was always there that just ease of being with each other in the space together, right? That just comes with the kind of, yeah, you know. One of those, you know, and I think the daughter kind of going off the uh, rails a little bit was also something that was, it made contention, but it also brought them, you know, where they could have never, you know, seen each other again. Because in the earlier years, Margaret was a Roger problem. Mm-hmm. You and Margaret were, were, Right, were, aligned. Yeah, were aligned. But as she takes her journey, you, nobody was aligned with that, and that pulled the two of you a little bit, yeah. you know, in, into the same camp. Yeah, that's a good episode where she goes to live on the commune. That's wild. I wanted to ask you: you were a very small person when Kennedy was murdered. What was it like to be in that in that episode? 
you know, from that perspective, from the Kennedy perspective, did you have feelings about it? Did you, I mean, for me, it was only ever a legend. And for me, it was like John Lennon was mine, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, did it, did you have feelings about it? Uh, Shooting it, um, not like, you know, it's funny because I was a young kid. So I just remember it being around in my house. So my feelings were very detached. Watching the episode again and seeing grownups react to it that I didn't get to see as a child um, was, it was very moving. And of course, now in hindsight, with all the gun violence and like, you know, it takes on different, it morphs into different things. So you had feelings about it as a history, but I would say I was too young to have tapped into it the way I would do as an adult, what a loss. And that's what you see in that episode. And what we all know is the beginning of, of, you know, there was many losses, you know, in those particular years. Yeah. Hmm. It's sad. It's an amazing time, you know, to write about. It was a beautiful episode. And then to have it on this wedding, like this, the whole world toppled and then they're carrying on and just this sort of cloud of, you know, that's the beginning of the, you know, really (laughs) bad times. Yeah. Well, I remember in interviews, you know, Matt would say if you were if the day before the Kennedy assassination, the biggest thing in your life was that you were getting a divorce. The day after the Kennedy assassination, the biggest thing in your life would still be that you were getting a divorce, which is obviously what Betty and Don are going through at that time. Um, and so, but, but the same applies to if your daughter's getting married, <laughs> you're the same thing, you know, the day after you have to, your daughter's getting married. And so I thought that's what, it was almost like that's the, the keystone for the way it all gets handled by everybody is that everyone's dealing with their own stuff, but this huge event takes place that, that impacts everything else, but life has to go on in some, some might be macabre. It might be desperate in whatever way it goes on, but life goes on. And I thought that was kind of the, um, one of the geniuses of how he handled it because it's so true to people's lives and it's so true to the characters. And I think that was, Really, I think it's the only episode you're in for season three, as it as it turns out. But it's probably one of the most prominent performances well, of yours in that character for the whole series. And I just, I just, what were, you, what was your recollection of of that shoot or that that experience for that episode in particular? Because I think I think Mona kind of gets a little bit of a spotlight um, in a way that she doesn't in other. Episodes. I agree. I, I I was always thrilled. At first, I was thrilled. It was Barbie Schroeder directed that. Was a great director. Loved that scene in the bedroom with the daughter. You know, I just was like, oh yes, you know, because sometimes it was less than or whatever, and and always good. But I was, uh, and I remember shooting it, going, you know, usually when you're shooting something, you're like, oh, this isn't, you know. I just remember thinking, this is gold. Like I was like, oh, I'm in a good wheelhouse I'm in safe hands this scene like you know just because she went to India doesn't mean she's not an idiot like these lines you know just (laughs) come out you're like there's you know just to feel like oh it's you will succeed doing this because as I'll always say this because the writing's so good and then right. it's featured right. so well. And it was, in, you know, that was, it was, I agree with you. It was important, you know, to 
see also that character is sort of in charge, you know, like, I don't know, it explained a lot to me. I am constantly fascinated with the fact that the episode about JFK was called The Grown Ups. Mm -hmm. Just the number of ways and touch points that 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 concept of grown-ups versus younger generation and older generation, what it means to be a grown-up. And spelled, spelled funny, spelled grown-ups with a hyphen, which is not how grown-ups is spelled. So it's it just keeps layering. And that and that scene that you mentioned um, with with Margaret, Elizabeth Rice, by the way, who plays your daughter. A couple, couple questions. First of all, just that idea of the grown-ups and that, that role that Mona plays. That's one of the sort of stakes in the ground of here's the grown-ups being grown-up. Mm-hmm. Or 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 saying we're going to get through this in in whatever way they need to in the moment, right? Which is very prominent and, and part of your character. But also, I'm interested in the relationship that you had with Elizabeth, just as actors, because again, you you were both recurring characters. You weren't in every episode, but you, when you when you each were on screen, it was meaningful. There was consequences to whatever those those parts were in those episodes. So, what was the relationship? I'd love to know. And that was probably one of the longer scenes that you had together. But but what can you tell us about that in terms of how you guys had to either bond or get together or reconnect each time? How, how did that yeah, go? Yeah, it's a funny, uh, I, was, cause I was just saying that whole thing where you, you just brought up and like, go to your room, like you're a little girl, but you're- <laughs> That's you're right. Your shit together. Um, it seems harsh. And Jane does the same thing also in the episode, by the way. She, you know, pouts and storms out. And yeah. the grownups end up on the phone together. Um, Precisely. But I think that uh, you, you raise a good question because when you come in, I was coming in from New York a lot to do scenes and you, you, you're not, you're just working with people so good that, that sometimes you don't get the opportunity to hang out and have a, a relationship. So a lot of, you know, in that particular episode, um, Barbe Schroeder was a very, very good director with actors. You know, there's all kinds of different um, directors and some are great, you know, he's everything. So working that day was sort of really trying to um, go towards what you're talking about. What well, She's being a spoiled brat and, you know, to make that scene work. So he, I remember him working a, a lot because it was sort of like, well, what is this? What is this of just, um, I think he talked a little bit about um, the character of uh, Margaret's disgust with Jane and how that made her sick to her stomach and that the, everything was geared to like Jane coming and, you know, and I was like, that was so spot on. That scene could be played a lot of different ways. And he really, he was really, cause I was listening to him. He was really, my, my part was more clear to me and he really, um, you know, tuned into that with her and she was really wonderful in it. Cause I laughed out loud and she left the room and kind of like just a brat, you know? And it's very almost theatrical. Like it, it was, it was really, um, I don't know, it, again, it's on the page, but the opportunity to sort of manifest relationships, you know, when you come in and out like that can be difficult. And, and look, if you're whatever she was, uh, the character 22, 23, and you're getting married and it's completely <laughs> ruined in your eyes by these external events that are out of everybody's control. The fact that we went through with it. <laughs> I'm like, wow, interesting. 
Yeah, we'll get to the toast in a minute. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, this is the episode that had Dan say any episode where Roger Sterling makes a speech mm-hmm. is a is a good is top episode. <laughs> um, I have to say in real life too. <laughs> I bet. Um, I wanted to say something about that episode also, which I didn't get the first time I saw it. Was the subtlety of uh, John Hamm and um, January when you said they're getting divorced? I was like, actually, I think that event. I'm not the actor and it was the catalyst, but just the way that you see him catching on to her indifference, um, just watching that show alone, I don't remember the preamble to it, but um, was uh, uh, it was so subtle and so um, informative, like, uh, and then that, that, that the event happens, like you said, maybe it did push her this way. Like when she wanted to go for a drive or something and he's trying to handle her, but she's not having it. You know, she's sort of, I think, gone, you know? Yeah. And we talk about actually on the podcast, how how many, how many things in Betty's internal process are, are either clicking in a different direction or changing in some way where things are falling into place for her that had never, had never real, never dawned on her before. And that she's this process of leaving Don is very long in coming, but everything's there. If you watch it again, you know, kind of all the way through, like nut jobs like us, you <laughs> you see just all of these dominoes clicking one after another. Not that it's inevitable, but that someone who was raised the way Betty was um, would would very likely or or could very likely reach these conclusions that she and she's reaching them all. That's not on the page. These things are all under the surface mm-hmm. for her. Absolutely. But because, but because of the, because of the um, things that happen, whether it's learning about Don and Fidelity and what she thought and the way she was raised and all of these things, by the time we get to you know late 1963, she's kind of had it. Mm-hmm. She's really had it, and and all that's left is for something to to snap for that last thread to be pulled. And and a number of uh, there's a number of final threads, but but they're all there at this point. You're so right. I think seeing the Sterling's marriage and the way it ends was one more thing that informs her. That's totally, you know, yeah. Uh, It's funny. We sometimes we compare uh, Trudy Campbell to Betty, but I'm now thinking she's really a junior Mona. Like, I mean, she. Yeah. 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 Even visually. Right. Like (laughs) Alison Brie could be your you know, your sister. Well, thank you. <laughs> I consider that a compliment. <laughs> or my daughter, I'm not sure. Um, but she, yes, you're right. I mean, sort of the, the role of wife is a very... And she's got that, she's got that poise, again, that you have that sort of stately, like, this is who wife is. Mm-hmm. Where Betty, Betty mm-hmm. has a different version of wife. Betty has a, uh, Betty has a... Um, it's more subservient. It's more, you know, I radiate. It's more romanticized. More romanticized. It's radiate sunshine. That is your job. Yeah. And and right. and then she she gets over that. <laughs> but that's interesting because we see Trudy in a number of instances where things are dawning on her as to just who the person that she's married to is and that she's not happy with, where she has to turn the other cheek is probably the wrong phrase, but steal herself for, okay, this is what you're dealing with. And I think Mona's probably, we, we catch up with Mona years after she's already yeah. <laughs> gone through yeah. that. So we're seeing the, the 
the result or the evolution of that person in a way. So that's a really interesting way to look at it. And then by time, you know, Roger leaves and Jane and everything else, it's kind of, it, there's so much on water under the bridge at that point. It's, it's I think the, the generation difference also the informing the time that Roger was in the war, you know, like I think that there was probably a little less um, outside influences and the expectations they create. Yeah, right? I mean, they created this sort of real 1950s expectation, right? You know? But, right. Which yeah. is Betty, effectively. Yeah. Wow, yeah. all these women are That's married to a bunch of nudniks. Yeah. <laughs> go stack it up. Well, we always say f- for a show called Mad Men, it's really about the women. It, it well, it really is really is. about the misogyny, right? And um, I was talking, my mom's generation, they had a lot to say about the show, and they were like, I would never, spot on, and never go back there. Like, you know, and you're like, wow, it's, it, it's, it affects your, you know, self sort of knowledge in, in that you just, like, how do you feel when somebody's doing that and it's accepted and, you know, you just take it and, you know, the effects of that on a woman or in the office or anything, Christina Hendricks, you know, like trying to move ahead and, yeah, so he caught that. Yeah, really bad men. <laughs> um, <so. laughs> no, without question, I think you know. And again, the the show handles these different characters so deftly by respecting each character individually and the decisions that they make as individuals. So, you know, you mentioned Christina and you know her character Joan. She has to make a decision at that point. What do I do? They go on. They go out to dinner after he rapes her, you know, it's just, and so th- these are things that are, they're not just individual decisions, although they are that, but they're, they, they, they exist within a context of what was expected and what society and everything else. I mean, you can kind of get highfalutin about it, but th- there's reasons behind each decision someone makes and it's complex. And a lot of it is under the surface that we have to infer, yeah. but it's what makes the show so great. It's also what sets Mad Men apart is is it is it doesn't take the TV route. It doesn't take it doesn't take Joan that day decides to leave him. It doesn't take, you know, season one, Betty, Betty finds out Betty, Betty gets a phone bill and then she sees something and then she says nothing. And she just keeps saying nothing. She spends like a year saying nothing. It's about really people. And I think the also the great thing, sometimes I'll watch television, I'll like all those characters have the same voice. They all have the same, they're saying the same, you know, and these are very specific. I, I, I mentioned a couple times uh, on, on the podcast that I think it was Tilda Swinton who won the Academy Award for Michael Clayton, right? It's one of my favorite movies. And it's one of the best written movies there is. And what she said once during a, an interview, she said, what, was asking why the movie's been so well received and critics and blah, blah, blah. And she said, because every character in this story, it's as if they were written by a different writer. And I'm like, whoa, that's that's really fascinating to think about, you know. And I think Mad Men has a lot of that. By no, the way. I think that the, it gets lost in a lot of things we're doing. And then it's just like, oh, that's the wife part. That's the this part. But the wife part sounds like the single girl part. And you, you can hear it, you know. Because <laughs> yeah, it's a single voice yeah. writing it. And so they're all trying to get to the same spot and it's a little too pat oftentimes. Right? It's convenient. And so when you see it in the in shows like that and Soprano, like, you know, that are just, it's, it's really just 
beautifully done. But don't take my West Wing away from me. I, 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 I don't know. I never watched it. So no. Yeah, writer also. Sorkin definitely does that, and you oh, know, yeah, for sure. Well, he gets he gets away with it. Most people he do not get away well. with it. <laughs> so I'm curious. So so the pilot for for Mad Men was shot well before the series was picked up and before they started running uh, season one, you know, from a full production standpoint, um, as the story goes. So how much did you know from John that, you know, did you hear about the show? Did you, did you see the script? Was there anything, how much did you know or how much had he shared about this, this new project of his before you even were, were, were either involved at all or, or involved in production? Um, I, think that I heard about it. I went to dinner with Matt Weiner, who I didn't know at the time, um, who was working with my uncle, who's Tim Van Patten, who did Sopranos and Wendy's wife. And we had all gone out to some pub or whatever. And Matt was like, I have this pilot, whatever. And he talked about it. And I think John I think John had heard about it or it was coming up and and I know that Matt wanted John to play Roger I think John had maybe I don't remember if there was any kind of I think John wanted to play Don is something I heard somewhere and maybe he did something about that but then Matt was like it was always Roger it was always Roger (laughs) and I can't remember when that happened but um and that, the, but that night, Matt said, but the, I have, there's a part for you in um, this thing that wasn't made yet. And I was like, oh, wow. well, I was like, okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> call, call me when you need no, it, right? I mean, you know, it was <laughs> call like, me when you're ready to do something. At this point in my life, you just you know, I hear things, but I let them go too. And um, but I, I kind of was like, well, why does he, you know, and I realized for years and years and years, I had um, auditioned for Sopranos. And I, I remember, this is such a good actor thing, because I, I remember, like, I knew I was never, I just would go in the room, because I just was like, I'm just, I like the material, I had nothing to do, I'll, I'll go read for it, but I'll never get it. Um, and I've been reading for Sopranos since the pilot. And Wild. <laughs> Weird story, though, Matt was always in the room later on when he was on it. And I was like, oh, that's why he... Knew Caught you. Me. He clocked yeah. me. Yeah. I didn't know it. <laughs> right. It wasn't a random thing. No, it wasn't thing, random. Right? So I was like, I didn't understand it. And so I was like, you know, I said to my agent, I go, well, look, if this thing comes up, they, it's, Matt Weiner was like saying, you know, there might be this part of the wife and this and that. And my agent's like, um, oh, you mean like um, a Talia Blossom type, right? And I was like, no, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> He was so disbelieving <laughs> of it. And uh, so, <laughs> not that far fetched. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Believe me. And um, anyway, they made this beautiful pilot. They shot in New York. And I remember John being like, this is great because our kid, <clears throat> you know, we were in New York raising our kid in New York. And um, it sold. And then they were moving to LA, but these things all did happen. He did offer me the part, which was highly unusual because at least in the few years, I don't know, in the last few years, no one ever 
got offered a part on the show. Everyone had to read, which was I, which I get. So I was like, well, I don't know, because I was in New York, whatever. But it was a great match. And so then I would fly to LA and, and do that and, and, and happily, but it was, it was circuitous. Like it, I don't really know how it happened. If I'd read for it, I probably wouldn't have gotten it. It was already it, happening before. It was happening <laughs> around <laughs> me and, um, you know, I, yeah. So, I mean, I felt like, oh, I, you know, it was this paranoid, like, well, you, you're doing this part because you're John's wife. You're like, no, Matt was very aware of me prior to all this, <laughs> but I didn't know it, you know? Um, it all worked out. I really couldn't tell you what a happy part of my life that is, was. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, as fans, that's great to hear. We love <laughs> we love hearing that it was a great experience and that it was just as, you know, amazing to, to do. Thank you so much, Ty. You've been absolutely wonderful and generous and just phenomenal, which frankly, we expected you to be for uh, for this discussion. We've, uh, we've, uh, <laughs> we've been... <laughs> One at one out of two. We've been no looking forward to this, and we've been fortunate enough, frankly, to speak with a few, um, a few cast members for this podcast. It's just been. It seems that it's a real community that you know everyone goes their separate ways, of course, and to the four corners. But everybody has such fond memories of this show. We hope that's universally true. We wouldn't want to think otherwise. But as fans, it's brilliant to get get a little insight from from the actors, and you've been just absolutely phenomenal with this and on behalf of all of our fans and listeners who are as deeply emotional about the show as we are it's it's wonderful to hear your experience and take on on the character and and your journey with the show so thank you so much for for joining thank us today you for having me really a pleasure really wonderful to be with you oh she's wonderful so good so good <laughs> right uh. told you told you guys She's the best. We had such a great time. And uh, like I said, she's she's a pro in every conceivable way. It's in her blood and it's in her bones, quite literally. And uh, who doesn't love that? She's stellar. So thank you for hanging with us. We will see you next week for our full discussion of The Grown Ups. <laughs> and that'll be great, too. <laughs> Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. One of the best ways to support us is to give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and to share us on social media. A great way to literally support us is at our Patreon, where we've got some extra content. Patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. If you're able, we love you either way. And we love your comments and your questions. Bring them on. Questions at theycoinditpod.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got a lot more Mad Men to get to, and we can't wait. See you next episode.